Hi, I am Phyllis Wolfram, and you are listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hello, everyone, and on behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to ADA Live. I am Beth Miller Harrison of the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, you may submit your questions about the ADA at any time at adalive.org. In response to the pandemic, most secondary and post-secondary schools in the U.S. canceled in-person classes this year back in March of 2020 and began providing virtual instruction. The shift to virtual instruction has exposed troubling gaps in digital access and accessibility, especially for low-income students and students with disabilities. Public and private schools and school systems are now faced with the difficult task of reimagining what returning to class will look like in the fall. There are three major laws that guide public instruction for students with disabilities. These are, one, Titles II and III of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, two, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and three, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. In the United States, there are approximately 7 million school-aged children between the ages of 3 and 21 who receive a free and appropriate public education under IDEA. And approximately 1.5% of students have 504 plans. Today, our focus is on students receiving special education under IDEA. These students and their parents are understandably anxious to know what the new classroom will look like in a COVID-19 world. At school, students receiving special education services often get individualized focus from professionals who are trained in and deeply familiar with their unique ways of thinking, perceiving, and processing. As we all learn to adjust to the COVID-19 pandemic, can our public schools ensure that all students receive a high quality education and also meet the unique needs of students with disabilities? Joining us today to discuss these issues is Phyllis Wolfram, Executive Director of the Council for Administrators of Special Education, or CASE, C-A-S-E. Phyllis, we are thrilled to have you today as our guest. 
thank you so much for being here. One of the key aspects of education for students with disabilities is that they be provided a free appropriate public education or FAPE, F-A-P-E. Phyllis, can you tell us what free appropriate public education means and also talk about the responsibilities school systems have under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and Section 504 of the Rehab Act. Yes, Beth, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to be able to address such important topics uh, for education, for special education, and for all of our students um, who receive services under the IDEA or the, uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Um, providing FAPE uh, to our students, uh, again, is that responsibility that every public school district has under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And what that means is looking at each individual student, looking at the area of eligibility, looking at their strengths and their weaknesses, and providing an individual education program specifically tailored to those students so that they can be successful and they can achieve in our public school system. All students that are eligible under the IDEA are also covered and eligible under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. It's similar to somewhat of an umbrella uh, because for all students with uh, an IEP, it is our responsibility to look at um, accommodations and modifications in order for those students to access their educational program. Our students with 504 plans uh, we have an obligation to provide those reasonable accommodations to those students who are eligible based on uh, that criteria that is set forth uh, in the uh, Rehabilitation Act. Thank you very much, Phyllis. That's a good explanation and kind of gives a little an idea to our audience about the differences, but yet some of the similarities of the two. As part of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA requirements, when necessary, um, schools must provide customized instruction for students with disabilities. Um, and those disabilities may include dyslexia, autism, blindness, cognitive impairment. When the pandemic started, Many schools face challenges in meeting the unique needs of special education students as everyone tried to teach and learn from home. Some students with disabilities who need customized in-person instruction were completely left behind when school districts were unable to provide equally effective education services. How will school districts address these issues going forward? So Beth, that's an excellent question. Moving forward, how do we uh, address the issues of uh, meeting the needs of all of our students? When we began school closure, 
across the nation, cases and organization, uh, began to dialogue with the field. And on our website, you will find many of our webinars free to anyone who would like to take a look at them, where we begin to look at uh, how can we meet the needs of our students. Uh, we know moving forward from this point on is a challenge, but what we knew at that point in time is uh, we also had a challenge back in March. So CASE uh, developed uh, what we felt were really four real important priorities. And first and foremost, we believe then as well as moving forward, it is important to focus on the safety, the health, and the welfare of our students and staff members in our communities. We know that it's important that we follow the guidelines of our local health departments, uh, as well as looking at the guidelines from uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. So health and safety has always been a number one priority uh, and will continue to be that moving forward. The second was to provide faith, uh, that free and appropriate public education that we spoke about in the first uh, question that was posed and to deliver those services to as many students as we reasonably can in the best way that we know how. And the best way was to work very closely with our parents and continue moving forward uh, to work very closely with that IEP team, including the parents, looking at the individual needs of students. What we know and we have data to look at is where our students were performing upon school closure. We know uh, what has happened for individual students during the time of school closure. Some of those students uh, will have regressed. We know that uh, typical developing students do uh, uh, experience some form of regression over our summer holidays uh, in every school year, and that our students with disabilities many times will regress even more so than the typical developing student. So it's important to look at and to assess where our students are functioning and, and what has occurred over the school closure time. And then when we return to school, when we return to what might be normal or possibly we've used the phrase our new normal, it is so important that we look at exactly where is that student functioning at this point in time? And what do we need to do? What instructional components must we put together in order to meet the needs of that student so that they can uh, recoup school, uh, skills that may have been lost and to continue to make progress in their educational programs? Uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll then talk about, it was really important, we had our third priority was to really document those efforts and continue moving forward to document the conversations that those IEP teams are having, document the concerns of the parents, uh, document what is happening in the environment and in the communities around us. What we know is that school systems cannot exist in a bubble that uh, we have to look at what is happening and what is the outbreak in the situation in our communities. And then our school systems will be able to function and perform more effectively. But as educators and as parents, we, we are saying document your efforts and what you've been doing. The fourth thing that we always wanted to keep in mind is that 
when the IDEA was written, when it was enacted, and first and foremost, uh, when Public Law 94-142 was enacted, no one had a pandemic in mind. And what we know is that the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, wasn't really written or built for this point in time. So I think moving forward, if I were to sum all of that up, it would be to say uh, for school districts and parents moving forward to work very closely together and to be transparent and to communicate what their needs are so that we can provide the best educational program under the circumstances that each individual family or student may be in to provide the best services possible. Well, I think that's that's excellent advice and, you know, assessment, working with a student from where that student is. And then I think another important piece of what you said is really taking into account the environment and the context and how that's impacting everything. One of the challenges, Phyllis, especially for students with disabilities and students learning English as a second language has been that sudden switch to online computer-based learning. What are the challenges with online learning for students with disabilities? And how are school districts meeting these challenges? That's a, another very excellent question, Beth. And the challenges really vary from community to community based on uh, the resources that individual school districts or individual school buildings may have access to. I know uh, in working with directors across the country, some of the uh, real need has been with regard to uh, internet access or bandwidth access in order to have devices work uh, efficiently. The second challenge that we have faced is um, even just access to devices. I've heard some wonderful stories of school districts uh, going door to door and delivering devices to uh, families who did not. And yet on the other hand, there are some school districts that have engaged in uh, what we would call a one-on-one -on -one device situation where students have had uh, devices uh, throughout the school year for maybe multiple years uh, in their public schools. So I think those are, are some of the challenges. I think some of the other challenges with regard uh, not just to devices, but have been uh, the family situation and the availability. We know that during this unprecedented time of a pandemic that our families have been uh, working from home, our parents, uh, we sometimes have multi-generational uh, families under one roof, and so there may not have been as much time to uh, work with young children in their educational needs. Uh, sometimes in those homes, it's where our teachers have had uh, their own children uh, trying to teach as well uh, students virtually as well as teach their own children at home. So it has been, uh, there have been a multiple uh, challenges with providing online learning to students. I believe we're getting better and I believe progress has been made uh, in some situations, probably quicker than others, uh, as far as individual school districts ability to even access devices and 
and to purchase those uh, to have them delivered. And I, again, though, I will just say in talking with my colleagues across the nation, there are such great efforts uh, going forth and we have truly encouraged all of our members and, and those directors that have tuned in to our programs and our webinars is to work very closely with their families to in, ensure that uh, they're communicating effectively, they're, they're meeting needs uh, in the best way possible given those circumstances uh, that each family is dealing with. And, and probably very much connected to um, the challenges of online learning is that many students who receive special education services rely on assistive technology to help them learn. So for example, you may have a student with a visual disability who might use a screen reader software to help um, read text aloud or use a braille reader. But a lot, a lot of online education platforms aren't compatible with assistive technology. Has that been an issue and, and what are schools doing to address that issue? Um, good question. I, I think over time, uh, more and more of our platforms have become uh, accessible, although we do know that it continues to be an issue. I believe that there have been uh, many instances where some of our providers have gone to homes, um, even with when we have had school closed and we've been delivering devices, trying to assist families with setting up a system for those students who have some real unique needs uh, so that they can connect and, and they can receive some educational services. It has, though, been uh, an extraordinary issue in some of our uh, uh, areas of lower socioeconomic status where we have not had uh, internet connections. I know I had an opportunity to visit with some of my colleagues, especially in uh, the state of Mississippi, where they were really struggling with that and they were continuing to work the best way that they knew how with the families, with the parents, and providing uh, some of that what continued to be maybe paper pencil types of activities or providing parents with activities that they could do in the home. But it has truly been a challenge uh, for education at this point in time with accessibility and with assistive technology for those students who have very unique needs. Thank you, Phyllis. Um, ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about this topic or any of our other ADA Live topics, you can submit your questions online at www.adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. Let's pause for a word about our featured organization, the Council of Administrators of Special Education. The Council of Administrators of Special Education is an international professional educational organization which is affiliated with the Council for Exceptional Children, whose members are dedicated to the enhancement of the work, dignity, potential, and uniqueness of each individual in society. 
Those who receive special education services are individuals who possess basic rights and responsibilities and who command respect at all times. Special education embraces the right to a free, appropriate public education. The mission of the Council Administrators of Special Education is to provide leadership and support to members by shaping policies and practices which impact the quality of education. To find out more about their important work, visit their website at www.casecec.org. Phyllis, before that break, we were talking about online learning and some of the challenges that this can pose for students with disabilities who are receiving special education services. A key component of special education, as we know, is the Individual Education Program, or IEP, and in fact, you've mentioned it um, earlier in our discussion. The IEP is a map that lays out the program of instruction, supports, and services that are designed to meet a student's unique needs in order for that student to make progress and thrive in school. The term IEP is also used to refer to the written plan that spells out the specific types of help the student will get. How are school districts adjusting their procedures, programs, and services to comply with each student's IEP during these difficult times? Again, Beth, another uh, really important question um, about uh, that compliance aspect. And since the very beginning when schools began to close, we have received guidance from the Office of Special Education Programs at the U.S. Department of Education. And what we know as special educators is that our uh, requirement and our obligation to provide faith that free and appropriate public education still remains. So how did we do that? What were school districts faced with? Uh, of the many challenges, one of the things that we said was most important is to, uh, in order to provide this, the components of what is in the IEP, is to work with parents and have that conversation to say, what can we do at this point in time? We encouraged school districts to look at maybe developing a distance learning plan. Uh, what is it that we're going to do over this point in time or moving forward when we're not in our regular educational environment in our school buildings? How can we meet those needs? How can we document? How can we continue that commitment to providing a free and appropriate public education under the current circumstances? And we did go back and we looked at some recent court uh, hearings uh, or decisions, and one was the, the Andrew F. Uh, decision where it talked about FAPE providing a free and appropriate public education under the current circumstances. And we used that and applied and said, our circumstances are so different right now that FAPE may look different. And that was a determination that needed to be made with parents. So adjusting those IEPs during this real unprecedented time in our nation, not to mention unprecedented time in education, and determining together 
What does the IEP look like? Or what does the distance learning plan look like? We cautioned school districts to say, uh, be careful that you really don't lose sight of the current IEP that you've been working uh, with and following with regard to goals and objectives because that was our normal. That was what we determined was necessary for a student to make progress. And we don't want to lose sight of, of that. And that was one of the reasons for a recommendation of looking at maybe a distance learning plan. Here's what we can do uh, during this point in time during the pandemic. However, we also said to local administrators and to educators to say, you also have to follow those rules and those guidelines that are set out by your own State Department of Education. And some state departments gave very specific guidance uh, about re-amending IEPs or uh, doing distance learning plans. And so we said the focus, if you have specific guidance from your state department, needs to go in, in that direction. Again, we, we, uh, our, our number one priority was the health and safety of our students, our families, and our teachers as well. I think it's so much of, of, of what we're heading into is unknown. It takes so much teamwork, I think, with um, families and teachers, all of us um, figuring it out. Um, and on top of that, of course, districts are also grappling with, grappling with some serious money issues. The economic downturn that resulted from the pandemic means less revenue for local and state governments and school districts across the U.S. are being asked to cut budgets. In some places, the cuts are extreme. How will this impact students receiving special education services? And how are school districts planning to meet the needs of students with disabilities? Beth, what we know is that is a real struggle for our school districts. There is a requirement in the IDEA uh, that is called maintenance of effort, and that requires local school districts as well as state education agencies to maintain the same uh, effort, fiscal effort, which means uh, you spend the same amount of money this year, if not more, than you did the previous year. And that's to help secure uh, that funding and those programs that we've established for our students with disabilities. And the maintenance of effort requirement is based on state and local dollars. And what we know during this pandemic is that we have seen, we will see and have seen a decrease uh, in spending uh, in all of our local communities and, and at our state level. Uh, so revenue that is generated from local and state funds coming into school districts have already been cut. And for this past fiscal year during the pandemic from March through June, and we are seeing additional cuts coming, uh, moving forward in the future. And then what we know is that the federal contribution to, to education and to special education in, in particular only hovers around 13% of what it costs school districts to educate students with disabilities. So it is a real challenge. One of the things that school districts are doing is uh, advocating, uh, advocating very strongly for some additional funding. 
what we know from the Council of Chief State School Officers, uh, and those are our head education uh, people in our state departments of education, have indicated that school systems will need between $158 billion to $245 billion in additional funding to reopen school buildings safely and to serve all students in the next academic year. Just last night, I was privileged to be on a webinar and this webinar can be seen uh, on the Facebook page of the National Parents uh, PTA, Parents and Teachers Association. And we were privileged to hear two of our infectious disease doctors who provided some very sound information uh, to us moving forward. And so you're, we're talking about the, the fiscal impact but one of the things moving forward, uh, if we are to open schools that you know, they shared with us, it's important for us to have masks and face coverings and to continue physical distancing and to have good hand hygiene and to really look at ventilation. Those were four very specific points that they made to us. In order for schools to do that, that is additional funding over and above what they had ever expended money on before. I know that in visiting with some of my colleagues, they've talked about, uh, do we need uh, partitions between spaces of children? And then another very challenging aspect um, is keeping that social distance if we come back to school in the size of our classes. So the challenges of educating all of the students in those more enclosed environments is greater than ever before. And if we're going to do that, it is going to, uh, it's going to cost uh, local school districts more money. And so we, we are asking for people to advocate. Uh, there is an opportunity on the CASE website, on our Action Center, for all educators, all parents, everyone, to take action and request additional funding. And I would really encourage any of your listeners uh, to, to take a look at that on the CASE website. It's under our legislative tab and it is uh, the Action Center. We've talked about the impact of the pandemic on students, but there's the whole other ball game about teachers and staff. What kind of concerns are you hearing from teachers and staff about going back to school? Well, first and foremost, I'm hearing that teachers want to be with their kids. They want to be with their students. They want to be back to that normal. They miss them. They know that uh, students flourish when they're in the classrooms. Uh, so that's what we hear first and foremost. Uh, I even hear that from special ed directors, uh, as challenging as their jobs can be. We miss being with students. We miss being with our teachers. Uh, that's what we hear first and foremost. But secondly, what we hear is the concern for the health and safety of our students and staff. And what we know is that uh, we currently have teachers uh, and staff members across the nation who might be at risk themselves or at a higher risk um, in that category for uh, contracting the virus. So their concern is great uh, in looking at the precautions for reopening schools and are we uh, doing all that we can and is it appropriate to be opening school at this point in time 
there are a number of, uh, of issues, of course, around that. We know that there have already been some schools that have, re have opened their doors during summer school. And we've had small class sizes. We have had social distancing. Yet we have also had uh, individuals during that time and in those classrooms that have contracted the virus. And then those school districts and have been contacting parents and we go into uh, a quarantine mode of uh, 14 days uh, and notifying all that could have possibly come in contact with, uh, whether that was the student or, the, or a staff member that may have contracted the virus. So those are the greatest concerns I think that we're, we're hearing right now and how do you balance, uh, we miss you, we want to see you come back to school with how do we do that in the safest way possible. And with the traditional school year set to begin soon in August, many students and staff with disabilities have health conditions, as you, as you mentioned, that can put them at greater risk of contracting the coronavirus or COVID-19. What are some ways that districts will try to protect their health and well-being as they return to the classroom in the fall? We've talked about in the direction and guidance that we've received from several of our infectious disease uh, doctors and our experts as they have been uh, working with us is that we have to have this commitment to masking. Uh, we have to have this commitment to supporting public education. And we really have to uh, commit ourselves to cleaning uh, each of those spaces, uh, keeping students in um, pods or in the same groups consistently, keeping them safe. Uh, those are some of the things that we've, we've talked about with regard to well-being. We've also really uh, directed school districts again to follow the guidelines that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has provided uh, for school openings and to be in touch with, work with your health uh, services within your school district who would be communicating with the local uh, Department of Health because what we know in some communities, we have a much higher outbreak than we do in others. So many of our local school districts in our communities are acting differently based on the outbreak or the number of cases of COVID-19 that might be in their community. So to really answer your question, in some respects, it varies widely uh, across the nation. Thank you, Phyllis. Um, in wrapping up today's show, do you have any additional advice for parents of students receiving special education who may be listening today? I do. I think first and foremost, it's important to really be transparent and to open up and continue to make contact uh, with your school district about what your needs are as a parent. I do believe that um, in in the good faith efforts that all of our special educators are making to provide our students and our families with the services uh, that they need and that they're able to uh, put into place at this point in time. 
and what we know that, uh, you know, in some situations, it might not be a good one. It could be that, uh, you know, teachers have gotten sick or teachers aren't available and there may be substitutes in play. And I would, I would just uh, offer to parents that to really continue to communicate openly uh, with your school district, uh, whether that's with your special education teacher, your special education director, your building principal, those that uh, you, you need to share with them what your current situation is and, and what you need. But I think the most important thing is good open communication uh, amongst all of us at this point in time. That's excellent advice. Keep the communication open. We're all, we all have the same goal. Thank you so much, Phyllis. I really appreciate your insights and your time today. And thank you, ADA Live listeners, for joining us for today's episode. We are grateful to our guest, Phyllis Wolfram, Executive Director of the Council for Administrators of Special Education, or CASE, C-A-S-E, for sharing her time and valuable insights on back-to-school access for students with disabilities during these unprecedented times. You may submit your questions and comments on this podcast online at adalive.org. You can access all ADA Live episodes on our, web, on our website at adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. Listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. Download ADA Live on your mobile device podcast icon by searching for ADA Live. We encourage you to celebrate, learn, and share about the ADA throughout the year and the ADA 30th anniversary in 2020. Check out the ADA Anniversary Toolkit at www.adaanniversary.org. The toolkit is a product of the Southeast ADA Center and the ADA National Network and features logos, social media posts, monthly themes, and other resources to keep the celebration going. Also, on a social media platform of your choosing, use hashtag thanks to the ADA to share what the ADA means to you, a moment in your life when you were thankful for the ADA. Share with hashtag thanks to the ADA. Reminder, if you have any questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit your questions anytime online at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Remember, all calls are free and they are confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orazda with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City 
the movement for improvement. See you next episode and be safe, everybody.